And we're in this series we're calling Life Through God's Eyes. It's a study on the book of Ephesians. And we've been covering a number of subjects from chapter one, which is a densely, densely packed chapter. Uh, I don't know if you took the advice last time and started reading through it in your own time. I I hope you have. Keep reading this book again and again and again. It's so good for the soul. It's so good for Christian identity. It's so good to know how much God loves you. And it's so good to get to know him better. So we're going to read from chapter one, verses three to ten. And we're looking at this particular word today, redemption, and you'll find it hidden in there as we read, so make sure you spot it as we read. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And it's in verse 7 particularly we're going to look today. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Do you know God changes lives? Are you aware of that fact? Some of you here today will be sitting here thinking, yeah, I know that. God has changed my life. And I would stand here and say that as well. I, was, uh, I met somebody new a few weeks ago. I, I, I started uh, a sort of lecture series, and I met this guy, and he seemed like an interesting chap. He was a Christian. And I said, I said to him in a coffee break, I said, tell us your story. He's about my age, and uh, he's in training for leadership in the Free Church of Scotland. And uh, he said, he smiled. He said, well, he said, four years ago, he said, I was not a Christian at all. He said, in fact, he said, I was a... Uh, a senior producer for the BBC, for BBC Scotland. I was a TV producer and for ITV Scotland. He said, and I was doing really well. I was living the life. He said, I was partying hard. He said, but I got addicted to, to cocaine. He said, and my life began to spiral out of control on the inside. He said, I ended up being in a very bad state due to depression and anxiety and drug addiction. My life had become virtually unlivable, and I couldn't see any way out. And he says, although on the surface I was advancing in terms of things like position, status, and pay, inside I was spiraling further and further downwards and more out of control. My family and everybody I knew suffered a great deal during this time. But then he decided to go into rehab, and He said the trouble was he'd heard it all before. He said, but then a Christian came to him and said, come along to this Christian recovery group for addicts. And he went along and somebody began to share the gospel with him about Jesus. And they said, Jesus can set you free. The truth of scripture can set you free. And somebody led him to Jesus. And he said, it changed my life. And 
Here he is four years later. Two years ago, he got married. A year ago, he felt God calling him into Christian leadership. You would never know the past that he had. But this was his statement to me. He said, now he said, I have to be very careful how I articulate this. He said, because he said, people tell you in recovery groups all the time, they say, once an addict, always an addict. You can never get away from it. You might feel freer, but you must always be aware. He says, but I know that God has freed me from addiction. What an amazing statement to make. You see, that's because Jesus changes lives. Now, this word redemption that we're looking at today, it's all about God changing lives. I don't know if you've used the word redeem recently. Um, We only use it in a couple of different ways in our culture these days. One is you might have a gift voucher that uh, somebody thoughtfully gave you for your birthday. Didn't know what else to get you. You're a very hard person to buy for and all that. They gave you a gift voucher. And what do you do with the gift voucher? You redeem it, don't you? That's right. You, in fact, it's actually technically the other way around. It's the, it's the person, it's the owner of the certificate, which is Amazon or whoever. They, they redeem it. They buy it back off you. So it means to buy something back. And... Here's the other sense it gets used. It's to, it's to kind of redeem yourself. It's to redeem your reputation. Any, I don't know if any of you saw the Scotland match the other night, Scotland-Slovakia. But at 30 minutes before the end, they brought on a substitute, Chris Martin. And Scottish fans being Scottish fans, they booed him onto the pitch because they felt he was clearly the wrong choice for the moment. Love Scottish fans. <laughs> and what does he do in the 89th minute? He scores the winning goal. He redeemed himself. I tell you, he was man of the match. Nobody was booing him after that. See, he'd bought back his reputation. I don't know why he'd deserved the boos in the first place, but he'd bought something back. Now, the Bible is a redemptive book. It's a redemptive story. It's the story of how the first human beings who God loved and had relationship with in his holiness, because they were also holy, They turned away from that and they chose sin and they separated themselves from God. They brought judgment on themselves. But the whole of this book is about a God who does everything in his power to buy them back to the future and destiny that he wants for the human race. And this word redeem has very, very deep biblical roots. You'll find it throughout the Old Testament. But when Paul writes these words, we have redemption through his blood, he has, in very particular mind, a particular story of the Old Testament, which became synonymous with this word redemption. When Jews talked about the great redemption, this is the thing that they talked about. In fact, in Deuteronomy 7, verse 8, it says, it was because the Lord loved you, he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And the story being referred to was this. It was the story of Israelite people being in captivity and being released from their bondage through God's mighty power. Now, I know you love a bit of acting, right? I'm not an actor, but I'm going to act out this story of the the Passover, the Exodus, because I know you've heard it a hundred times. I'm not a great actor, but I know this much, that when you're telling a monologue, all you have to do is turn around like this, 
And then the next time I turn around, I am in character. <laughs> you ready? Okay. Here we go. Great to see you this morning. My name is Isir, and I'm one of the sons of Korah. And I've got to tell you about the most amazing thing that has happened in my life in the last 24 hours. I've got to tell you who I am. Let me introduce myself. You see, you might ask me what job I have. Well, I'm a builder. Me and my family and my parents and my parents' parents have all been builders. Not by choice. I'd love to have been a doctor or a teacher. But because we've been raised as slaves, all of us, and the only job they'd ever give us was to build bricks. And so it's been pretty hard, I tell you, working 365 days a year without any holidays. And it's been pretty hard. I watched my father get beaten to death because he wasn't working hard enough. I watched as they abused my wife. I watched as they insulted my children. I was powerless to do anything about it because slaves, we don't have any rights. And a few months ago, something began to change just when we'd lost all hope because I prayed to God many times for him to deliver us. This guy Moses turns up and he says, it's time for you to go. It's time for us to be free. He says, I'm going to have a word with Pharaoh, and I'm going to get you out of here. I thought, I'm all ears. But it didn't go according to the plan. See, Moses talked to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh just laughed at him. And Pharaoh said, I'm not going to let them go. I'm going to make their lives even more miserable. And things got pretty bad for us. So Moses sent plagues. God gave him plagues to send on the Egyptians to say, let them go or I will punish you. And there were some pretty amazing things that happened. Storms of hailstones that flattened their crops, all their livestock dying. The Nile turned to blood, darkness over the land. In fact, such mighty acts of power, we thought, surely Pharaoh will let us go. But he would not let us go. And I lost all hope because I thought, He will never let us go and nothing can be done. Even the greatest miracle will not deliver us from captivity. But then just yesterday, this is what happened. Word went around the camp and said, this is it. This is the big one. It's the final one. Make sure you're ready for this. And this is what we were told to do. Can I have that, please? The word was this. Get a lamb and slaughter it. And cover the doorposts of your house with the lamb's blood. Because tonight at midnight, there is a, there's a plague coming which is going to kill every firstborn son in Egypt. And you ought to know that this plague isn't just going to affect the Egyptians, it's going to affect you. Unless you follow these instructions, paint the blood of the lamb all over your doorposts. Make sure you do a good job with it. So we did it. And I've got to be honest, we were terrified. We were terrified at what was going to happen that night. I went in with my family, and particularly my firstborn, and we gathered close, we huddled together, and we sat and we waited as the sun went down. And at midnight, we began to hear the cries of death all around us. There was a moment where it came close to our house. I felt death knocking on our door. And yet, Something turned it away. It just stopped. It didn't get past. 
I fell asleep, exhausted. Next thing I knew, people were shouting. It was daylight, saying, get up, get out. We're free. We're not slaves anymore. And I gathered the people. I took my kids. I took my family. And I gathered our stuff. And we left. We went through that door. And I looked back at that door. And I remember just yesterday, I walked through that door and I was a slave. And when I walked back through it the other day, today, I was free. Okay. The, so, don't worry about the carpet, by the way, that had some protection down there. Um, the, here's the thing. Redemption for Jewish people was this. It was to understand that as a result of this peculiar occurrence in the Old Testament, their freedom had been obtained through the greatest act in redemptive history. And those first steps of freedom began a journey of going through a Red Sea and coming into a promised land. Now, what is being taught to us in Ephesians chapter 1 is this, that an even greater act in redemptive history is when Jesus Christ died on a cross for the sin of the world. And what Paul is saying, yeah, this amazing redemptive event is a bit like the most amazing of redemptive events in history. He's saying it's even better. So to get to grips with this, we need to understand this. Well, in what sense are human beings slaves? Because That sounds a bit weird. We're familiar with the idea of slavery today. There's 45 million people, according to IJM, who are in human slavery around the world today, and that's abhorrent. That's horrible. God hates slavery. But do you know what? The Bible teaches that every human being, man, woman, child, is born into spiritual slavery. We can read about it in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 where Paul describes our pre-Christian state. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. In that verse, there's just three references to slavery that we were held into. He talks about being a slave to worldview. He says, you followed the ways of this world. That's to say that we were brought up in an environment, family, friends, peers, what government teaches, what our culture says. And we we were taught to think those things were right and wrong. And it shapes us. It shapes our view of right and wrong. It's interesting to see, if, if you don't believe this is true, then... Just see how worldview changes over time. 40 years ago, those of you old enough to be as old as me, was anybody talking about recycling? No. What happens if you put the wrong tin in the wrong box now? You can go to prison. <laughs> no, people take that very seriously, don't they? If you, if, you, if, you, uh, if you disobey a recycling law, that's a major, major crime because we're meant to care for the environment. That's a right thing. That's a biblical thing. That's something that is good. It's a good influence in society that says, well, our worldview has changed for our good. But isn't it funny? We can be so passionate on the environment, yet on, in terms of the rights of children inside their mother's wombs, we're just like, oh, well, that's not a big deal. Which does God care about more, plastic or children? Yet 
worldview is shaped by our culture and our upbringing. It's because people tell us one thing is important and one thing isn't. Well, Jesus came to deliver us from wrong worldview. He also came to deliver us from Satan's lies. He talked in that verse about the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Satan is there. Whenever you're seeking permission for yourself to sin, he's there to encourage you, to tempt you, to command you, to help you on your way. We can find ourselves in bondage to his lies. He talked about gratifying the sinful uh, cravings of our flesh. We can be slaves to self-indulgence. That's not just the reference to sexual stuff, but any desire that is self-centered, compulsive, sinful, appetite. Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. We have this built into us, and we need deliverance from it. A friend of mine once told a story of going to stay at somebody's house, and he noticed they had a, a dog. And every time the owner got food out to feed the dog, he noticed that this dog went absolutely berserk, running round and round in tight circles around the table leg in the kitchen. And he noticed that a few times, he said... Wow, he said, that's unusual. Why does your dog do that every time you open a tin of food? And the owner said, ah, that's because this dog was rescued. They said, you wouldn't believe its history, how cruel its previous owners were. They tied it to a stake in the garden for years, and they never let him off his lead. And they said, every time they finally remembered to give him some food. He got so excited, the only way he could express it was to run round and round in circles around his post at the full extremity of his chain. He said, and I guess it just takes time for the old thinking to get out of him. That whenever he gets excited about food, now he just runs in a circle. See, Jesus came to deliver us from self-indulgent thinking Here's some others that the Bible tells us that we were slaves to. Hebrews 2.15 says that Jesus came to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now, we're not afraid of death in our culture, are we? No, we just never talk about it. (laughs) We're so afraid of it, we don't even mention it. We don't like to talk about it at all. I want to suggest it's maybe because the Bible is true that we don't like to talk about it because we're fearful of it. Here's another one. It says, we were slaves to idols. Galatians 4, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. A slave doesn't have to be a statue. It can be anything that takes center place in your life. How do you know something's an idol? Well, it's basically whenever it texts you, you just respond to it straight away. Whether that's a job or a relationship, you think, no, I've got to drop everything else in order to serve this thing. Here's a final one. Slaves to emptiness. 1 Peter 1.18 says that Jesus redeemed us from the empty way of life handed down to us from our ancestors. That's to say that you can just have a way of thinking passed down from generation to generation to generation. And yet, you know, it's empty. And Jesus sets us free. The Israelite firstborns should have received the same judgment as the Egyptians. But God, when he came to punish, he saw that the death penalty for sin had already been paid. That event became known as the Passover. And in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, 
It says this, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He makes this link. When Jesus paid a price, the price he paid, it wasn't to do Pharaoh a favor. Notice Pharaoh didn't get a dime out of this. Actually, God was paying a debt of justice to himself, to a holy God. So we understand this redemption. It's a purchase of God. It's a buying back. It's a liberation from slavery. And it comes as a result of the cross of Jesus. And we're told in these verses that Paul pens for us that there are three parts to this redemption, to this liberation that comes to us when you are a Christian. And the first point is this, the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, cleansing. Isn't that an amazing thought that the God who knows everything, he even knows the number of hairs on your head, he knows what you had for breakfast this morning. Yet if you've put your trust in Jesus, anything you've ever done wrong in his sight, he deliberately and willfully forgets and forgives. And here's something for you as a Christian to consider. For some of you here, you just keep rehearsing past failures, past mistakes. You keep bringing them to God saying, well, this is what I'm like and that's what I did in that situation. And you need to know that whenever you bring those things to God, he's looking at you saying, what things? I don't remember it. I've forgiven it. And God wants you to move on with your life and not live in the past, but to live in his forgiveness, his redemption that is yours. We're free through the blood of Jesus. 1 John 1 verse 8 says, And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all unrighteousness. But you know this word forgive, when Paul talks about the forgiveness of sins, it's it's an interesting word that he uses. Because it has this sense not just of forgiving, being transactional. We we understand forgiveness as being a transaction, yet God wipes the slate clean. But it means so much more than that. It means to be freed from something. So when Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, he announces his mission when he's quoting Isaiah chapter 61, and he says, I've come to bring freedom for the prisoners. It's this same word. You could translate it forgiveness or freedom. Freedom from sin, forgiveness for sin. And here's what's being said to you. When God speaks his forgiveness over you, he also breaks the power of sin over you. It's one and the same thing that God does in your life. He doesn't just wipe a slate clean, but he destroys the very power of it in your life. We need to understand that Jesus has broken the power of sin in our life. Therefore, we are no longer slaves to any sin, no matter how much of a grip it seems to have on our life. There was once a a famous escapologist called Harold Houdini, and he was renowned for being able to uh, escape from any straitjacket you put him in, to escape from any prison cell that you put him in, anywhere. He, He would just follow his captors literally within seconds of them tying him up or locking him up. But there was one time where he struggled, and somebody put him in a prison cell, 
And straight away, they, they, they closed the door, and straight away, he whipped something out of his belt, and it was a long, thin bit of metal. He started picking up the lock, picking up the lock. Two minutes goes by. That was his personal best. Five minutes, ten minutes, he's still struggling. He's still pushing up the lock. He's still trying to fiddle with it. Ten minutes, half an hour, one hour. Gets to two hours, and he throws himself on the floor. He says, I can't do it. Do you know what happens? The guy who put him in there, he just went and pushed the door open. (laughs) It had never been locked. He'd spent two hours trying to unpick a lock that wasn't locked. Christians, when Jesus died on a cross for your sin, he broke the power of sin in your life. He's undone it. The struggle is no longer yours because he's achieved it for you. Some of us, the reason we struggle with sin is because we think it's our struggle. Jesus has done it. Jesus has done what is necessary to get you free from sin. Sin is always a choice for the Christian. That's the first part, forgiveness. Here's the second part of redemption. If you're still in Ephesians, look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. And this refers to our future glorification of our bodies. That might sound weird, but let me just read this to you. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. So forgiveness is present, right? So that's what we already have. That's the benefit of redemption now. We have relationship with God, forgiven. Here's something that isn't present, but it's future. And the future is this, that We have a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. In Romans 8, Paul further adds to this. He says, uh, we, we eagerly wait for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. What's being taught here is this. It's great to be forgiven and for the power of sin to be broken in your life. Is that the end of the story? No, because... The truth is this, I have a a decaying body, I know it looks pretty good, but I have a decaying body which one day, unless Jesus comes first, is going to be buried in the ground. It's going to succumb to some disease or something. And here's the other thing, my mind isn't as sharp as it used to be even. And probably as I get into old, old age, if I make it that far, my mind will be less capable than it is now. See, my body and my mind need deliverance. They need Jesus to save them and to liberate them. And we're not just spirit beings. That doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun, does it? Just wandering around on a cloud in heaven one day without a body. No, we, we, we kind of like our bodies. God's made us composite people, spirit, soul, body. And he's going to redeem all of us one day. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, how do we know he's going to do that? That one day he's going to totally heal our bodies and restore them in the same likeness as Jesus' resurrection body so we can enjoy him for all eternity. How do we know that? This verse says we know it because he has given us the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. How do we know that God will redeem our body one day? He'll deliver us. Because he's given us the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, he gives you the Holy Spirit. And that means this. It means that God is seriously committed to your future 
now. It means that your future is secure and certain even as we speak today. Because God's given you the Holy Spirit. In Old Testament times, when they did um, property transactions, this is, this is fun. Ali, can you just take your shoe off for me, please? Um, left shoe. Uh, is that, no, right. Do, do right. Right is fine. Yeah, right. Okay, left. No, right. Okay. Um, this is what they'd do when they did a deal. You can read about this in Ruth chapter 4 if you're interested in the Old Testament. That when, uh, well, just wait a sec. Um, so when they did a deal to say, like in Britain, we shake hands when we, we do a deal. We think, my word's as good as my bond. Let's shake hands, all that stuff. In Old Testament times, what they'd do was they would swap shoes. And when you saw somebody wearing a different shoe than their other shoe, it meant they've just done a deal. So here we go, Ali. Let's, let's just say, I'm going to buy you lunch today, okay? Is that a good deal? Right. I hope you like Nigerian food. Okay. And so, um, you've got the same size feet as me. That's pretty good, actually, yeah. So... What this means is this, that me and Ali now have a bond which is publicly seen. That actually, I am going to buy him lunch. This is what it means. Now, when God gives you the Holy Spirit, it's his way of saying to you, the future is sure. Whenever you see the Holy Spirit evidenced in your life through the fruit of the Holy Spirit, or through that sense of identification of feeling like and knowing that you're his child, his son, his daughter which you feel those things when you're a Christian. It's the evidence of this, that there's something much better to come. Here's the third and final part of redemption. We read in verse 10. He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. To bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. This is where the narrative goes. This is where the future lies. It's with Jesus at being the center of all things. And the thing that Jesus has come to redeem us from is a self-centered, self-indulgent way of thinking about our life. Do you know... Before Copernicus, the scientist, kind of discovered it for us, we always used to think that the whole universe revolved around the earth. And now we're wiser and better than that now. But isn't it funny that these days, people seem to suggest that the whole point of life is for it to revolve around me. It's about self-identity. It's about individualization. It's about get every... I find my greatest fulfillment when I'm being me. Well, Jesus came to deliver you from that wrong way of thinking. He's come to liberate you from it. Because actually what this verse tells us is this, that everything revolves around Jesus. And one day, everything will find its place looking at and worshipping Jesus. I mean, it might sound nice for the whole world to revolve around you, but isn't that the worst pressure in the world? (laughs) To feel like the, the success of your life is identified by just how much you did it, how much you achieved. What a horrible pressure. If this is the best I can do with my life. No, much better to understand that, no, the whole point is Jesus and we all revolve around him like planets revolving around the sun. You were made to revolve and rotate around Jesus and to live for him. 
And today, God wants you to know that he has redeemed you. Let me ask you these questions today. Are you standing under the redemption that is yours through Jesus? Let me ask you this today. Has he forgiven your sins? Have you chosen to walk under this doorway of the cross where Jesus shed his blood for you? Let me ask you this as a Christian. Are you looking back and understanding that that's where all of your freedom comes from? Not from your human self-effort. Let me ask you this. Are you trusting that one day God will finish off the job in your life and will fully redeem you? body and soul, and bring you to be with him forever. It could be that you have pain in your body. It could be that you have struggles in your mind. But a man who faced both of those things by the name of Job, with confidence before God, he says, well, I know that my redeemer lives. I know. I know that he'll put this right. I know And I trust in him, the one who will liberate me. It says in Psalm 107, it says, Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. This is something so powerful that each one of us has a story to tell. But do you know it also says in Revelation 14, verse 3, it says that there is a song in eternity, that only the redeemed of the Lord know its words. And today, we can sing that song. That song starts here and it goes on into eternity. And the song goes like this. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it as white as snow. It's a song to say that all of my hope is in Jesus. And I wonder if you've learned that song today. We're going to sing a, a song now, putting our faith and our hope in Jesus. Let's stand together and let's sing.